Picture yourself in a courtroom. Those who stand accused were supposed to be upstanding citizens who kept their word and showed kindness to their neighbors. Instead, they stand accused of swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery, and violence. The consequences of their crimes is devastation all around, not just for them, but for the very ground on which they live. The verdict is read. They're found guilty. Their leaders are stripped of their official roles. Their honor is turned to shame. Their blindness to truth has been their undoing. And the judge speaks sadly and even ironically of their sad state. What good is it to punish them? They pay no attention. This is the scene of Hosea chapter 4. God has a case against the people of Israel for their spiritual adultery against God, which has in turn led them to various sins against their fellow man. Hosea warns in this chapter and the next that refusing to know God destroys you. In chapter 6, which we'll get to next week, we will see a glimpse again of God's compassion. But these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, provide a sober warning of the consequences of sin. And the first idea I think we see here in chapter 4 is that God forgets those who forget him so that they might remember. God forgets those who forget him so that they might remember. He starts out with this idea of the court case against them. God expects his people to be righteous, so he brings a case against them when they aren't. What was supposed to be true of God's people? They were supposed to know God and then be faithful and kind to one another. And yet verse 1 says the Lord has a case against them because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. And I think the order of those things are important if we don't have a right knowledge of God. And by knowledge, I don't mean facts. I mean relationship with God. Because the way that knowledge of God is used in the Old Testament is tied in with phrases like the fear of the Lord and the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. All of these ideas are wrapped up together. Knowledge of God is not just, I know that there is a God. It's not just that I know there's certain things that are true of God. It's that I know God as a person. Uh, the parallel, I think, for us would be, um, I don't know, going back to the, the conference on Friday. If I said, do you know Pastor Dwight Schultz? And if you're like, I, you look it up on the website and you're like, I see facts about him. I see that he has a couple of kids. He's got some grandkids. His wife's name is Grace. Okay? Those are facts. But if I say, do you know him? I'm not asking, can you look up a list of facts and recite them to me? Right? I'm saying, do you know him as a person? That, I think, is the knowledge of God that's lacking here in verse 1. There's no knowledge of God in the land. It's not just... Do you at the basic level know things that are true about God? It's do you have a relationship with him? And when that is lacking, you're not going to keep your word to people around you because you don't know that God is a God who's a God who's faithful, right? A God who's trustworthy. And if you don't know that because you don't have a relationship with God, what basis do you have for keeping your word to other people? You don't. Only to the extent that it keeps you out of trouble, right? And if you don't know that there is a God who's been kind to you and shown mercy to you, what basis do you have to show kindness to other people? 
Kindness is not a it's not an advantageous business quality. It's not an advantageous uh, success for your nation against other nations kind of characteristic, right? If you want to get ahead, you stomp your competitors into the dust, you crush your enemies, right? And for all the, the ways that people talk about, oh, karma will get you if you're mean, that's not how people live, right? First of all, karma is a false idea. Second of all, even the people who say it basically only do things the right way when they think they're going to get caught doing them the wrong way. And if that sounds like a cynical view, that's the nature of the human heart. If we feel like we can get away with something, we're going to try to get away with it because that's our natural, selfish, sinful disposition apart from God. So if we don't know God, we're not going to be faithful and kind to the people around us. The people of Israel had abandoned God, turned on one another, and God said, I'm going to hold you accountable for this lack of righteousness that characterizes you. What did they do instead? Verse 2. They swore, and probably the swearing there, it could either be taking God's name in vain or swearing falsely. And I think given the condemnation for no faithfulness, it's probably swearing falsely toward one another, as in violating the one of the Ten Commandments where it says don't bear false witness against each other. It could also be uh, not you know, tied in with the idea that here's what you are promising in God's sight, and I would tie that in with uh, verse 15, don't take the oath as the Lord lives. There were probably also people who were not only swearing falsely against one another and lying about each other, but that is often also closely connected with falsely taking God's name as an oath to try to um, get people to trust you even though you're outright lying. As the Lord lives, this is true. As you're lying against your neighbor and in that way to also taking God's name in vain. They deceived one another. They murdered one another. They stole from one another. They committed adultery. And then this phrase about employing violence or uh, exceeding all boundaries so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. When you become untethered from God's character as the basis for right behavior and a relationship with God as the motivation for right behavior, there is no telling where you will stop. People are like, that's just ridiculous. That's a slippery slope argument. You know, people aren't going to be as bad as all that. I think the Bible is very clear in passages like Romans 3 that apart from God's divine intervention, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder, we are corrupt, we go our own way, we run away from God, we are horrifically evil toward one another. Which Romans 3 is tied to Psalm 18, so it's not just a New Testament concept. My point is to say, when the people of Israel abandoned a relationship with God and began to then also disregard love your neighbor as yourself, the natural consequence was all of these sorts of sins and they just got worse and worse and worse. What was the result? It says the whole land mourns, the land becomes empty, everyone and everything in it languishes, the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea disappear. 
This is not an argument for protection of endangered species. Uh, I was thinking about endangered species last night because I was uh, talking with the kids and Sarah about a cool fish that they discovered that they thought was extinct because they thought it was just a fossil. It's called a coelacanth. It lives deep in the ocean. Um, they think there's maybe like 500 of them left in the world, something like that. When we see a passage like this, modern sensibilities would lead us to say, well, if, if the beast in the field and birds of the sky and the fish of the sea disappear, it's probably because they're, you know, you know, strip mining the land and cutting down all the trees and all those sorts of things. But God here is making a direct correlation between sinful behavior and devastation on the very ground on which people walk. We saw this in the book of Isaiah when we were going through it, right? It was saying that the land itself cries out and sort of rebels against the bloodshed that's being poured out on top of it, which is a strange concept for it, but I think it ties in with Romans 8 where it says the whole of creation groans for the day when God is going to redeem it from the curse of sin. And in the meantime, to the extent that we behave in sinful ways, that spills over and has effects even in the very surroundings of where we live. Someone who has such disregard for human life that um, you're willing to murder someone, they're not going to value the life of their livestock either, right? And so there's going to be a general mistreatment and a disregard for everything. So God expected his people to be righteous, so he brought a case against them when they weren't. And then the first aspect, building on that of God forgetting those who forget them so that they might in time remember him, is that God let them go their own way. Look at verse 4. Yet let no one find fault and let none offer reproof. This is, I think, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet Hosea, ironically. Did God care about their sin? Absolutely. But there's also a degree to which he's saying they are so stubbornly persistent in their sin, I can warn them and warn them and warn them and warn them and they keep going their own way. So he's basically speaking ironically, I think, and saying, let no one find fault, let none offer reproof. Uh, verse also, verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot. Verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him be. I think the prophet is speaking ironically and basically saying these people are so committed to their sin and they have received so many warnings that they have failed to heed. There's a, there's, it's not as though God is giving up on them, but in the words of Hosea, he's basically saying, what more do I have to do to get your attention? What is going to get you to listen? You are so persistent in chasing after sin. As we build on this idea of God forgetting them as they forget him so that they will eventually remember him, God causes them to experience the natural consequences of their stubborn iniquity. Verse 5, you will stumble, the prophet will stumble, I will destroy your mother. That goes back, I think, to chapter 2. This picture of Gomer as a picture of Israel. It says, contend with your mother. Hosea 2, verse 2. Okay. Then verse 6. 
My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will reject you from being my priest. Since you've forgotten the law of God, I will forget your children. The forgetting your children part also goes back to Hosea chapter 2, verse 4. I will have no compassion on her children. Um, so the people are condemned because they're basically bringing accusations against the priests. The priests are being condemned because they are failing to warn the people of their sinful ways. They're failing to teach the people of God, which then leads to nobody having a relationship with God. The knowledge here in verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Um, it parallels another verse, and I forget where the verse is. It's in Isaiah or Jeremiah. Uh, it's my people suffer for lack of vision is the way that it's sometimes translated. And this was a real popular verse for certain churches to have. Like, like if you don't have vision, if you don't have a five-year plan, if you don't know where you're going as an organization, you're just going to wallow in, in failure. It's not the point at all. It's saying if you're spiritually blind and you don't have a relationship with God, that leads you to destruction which is a whole lot more serious than organizationally being unsure of your direction. And so this verse, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, it's lack of knowledge of God. Because you've rejected knowledge of God and the relationship with God that should correspond to that knowledge, God rejects the priests, God forgets the people because they have forgotten him. Verse 7 Shameful sin will turn their glory to shame. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned. It should have been the more the mul they multiplied, the more they rejoiced in God's blessing, the more they worshipped and praised Him. But instead, the more they multiplied, the more they said the reason we're multiplying is because we're having these immoral relationships and worshipping these pagan gods. And so instead of crediting God for their success, they credited pagan idols for their success. And God says, you're glorying in the wrong things. These are shameful things, and I'm going to reveal the shame of them to you. Then he goes back to condemning the priests. Um, and, and, you know, the multiplication, you know, the one translation takes it as the more the priests multiplied, the more they sinned. I think that there's a case to be made that it's the more the people multiplied, the thing that I just said. They are having children, worshiping fertility gods of the pagan idols of the peoples around them, and then giving credits to those gods for their multiplication. There's also a real sense in which there were more priests, but there wasn't more knowledge of God. But I don't know if that's necessarily the main point here. I think there's this middle part where he addresses the priests, goes to the people, goes back to the priests. And it sort of interweaves what's going on with both the leadership, the spiritual leadership, and the sad state of the people themselves. The they feed on the sin of my people, I think, is going back to the priest and direct their desire toward their iniquity. So the priests are supposed to be saying, hey, stop doing that. You've abandoned God. Turn back to God. But the priests are saying, hey, you know what? God's happy with you. Keep doing what you're doing. Why? Because that gives them more power, gives them an opportunity to do whatever they feel like, to behave, for example, like Eli's sons who are committing immorality with women right outside the tabernacle, who are going and instead of they were supposed to take the fork and put it in the pot of boiling meat and whatever the fork got, 
That was God's provision for them, and they were supposed to trust God. Maybe today you're eating ground beef. Maybe another day you're eating steak. You're going to trust God for it and not complain about the results. They were stopping people at the door of the tabernacle and being like, Hey, give me the prime rib. Hey, that's a beautiful woman. I'm going to go commit immorality with her while you go in there and offer your sacrifice. That's the sort of way that people were behaving in the time of the judges. And I think they reverted to that pattern of evil behavior in the time in which Hosea is condemning them. Why do I say that? Because of verse 10. We'll get there in just a moment. It says, it will be like people like priests. God's going to condemn all of them together and repay them for their evil behavior. Why do I say that there are parallels between this and the behavior of Eli's sons? It says they will eat but not have enough. When God's people said, we're going to take the best of it or more of it than God has provided, think of the case with the manna. God said, gather enough for two days and I'll have provision for you. What did some of them do? They said, you know what? We might want to just hedge our bets. We're going to gather enough for four days. What happened? It rotted. It got worms in it. It went bad because they didn't trust God to provide for them. So in their pursuit of idolatry and their trust in themselves, they're gorging themselves and starving. Instead of being content with God's pattern for marriage as being a pure symbol of his relationship with his people, they're giving in to sexual desire wherever they can gratify it. And instead of multiplying, God says, I'm going to make you barren. Why? Verse 10, you stop giving heed to the Lord. So God causes them to experience the natural consequences of their stubborn idolatry. All of this as part of God forgetting them because they have forgotten him. I have a case against you. I'm going to let you go your own way for a time. I'm going to let you experience the natural consequences of your sin. We're going to come back to the next. uh, We're going to go on to the next thing in just a moment. But I just want to pause here for a moment. If God lets you go your own way and nobody catches you for what you're doing that you know to be wrong, that is not something to rejoice in. That is something that should terrify you. Because if you say, I know God, but he's not punishing you for sin, the most reasonable conclusion is you don't know God. Because the Bible makes it clear, like in Hebrews 12 and other places, that God disciplines his people for purposes of holiness. So if you're not living in a holy way, and there is no intervention by God to make you holy, there is strong reason to believe you don't have a relationship with God. Now, are there exceptions to that? Yes, there are people who stray from God for a time, and it seems as though God lets them go their own way, much as God is doing here. And yet, that should not be a place of security and confidence in where you stand before God. If there are moments when you think that lust is okay because nobody knows what you're thinking, you think greed is okay because people probably won't notice it, you think hatred toward people around you is okay because it doesn't really spill out in a way that people can see, if we tolerate sins like that in our hearts, and there's no immediate consequence, and we have the response, like in Second Peter, of those who scoff against God and say, guess he doesn't see, guess he's not going to do anything about it, that is a terrifying position to be in, because 
pride and self-confidence and reveling in sin are characteristics of those who do not know God or are walking down the path of apostasy, and we should never want to be in that spot. If we are experiencing the consequences of sin, and we say, why, why do things keep going badly for me? One of the questions we should ask ourselves is, is it because I am living in a way that is contrary to what God wants? Now, does God test his people? Yes. Are there times when God's people are in need or are sick or are experiencing some sort of loss and it is not at all because they have individually sinned but simply because God is doing something to glorify his name? Absolutely. But just because that is sometimes the case does not mean that we should disregard the possibility that God takes us through hard times to bring us to our senses and say, follow me, give that up. God often brings us to a point of taking everything away in order that we might depend wholeheartedly on him. And so we should not be unaware of that sort of work. Let's do the next point and then we'll make a little bit more application. God reminds them that their sin and its consequences are rooted in their turning from God. God reminds them your sin and its consequences are rooted in turning away from me. Look at verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Let me put this very bluntly. Immorality and drunkenness lead to stupidity. Proverbs talks about this. It says, hey, you think that you can pursue lust and it has no consequences for you? It's kind of like you're taking live coals from the fire, putting them inside next to you in the most uh, vulnerable parts of who you are and thinking you're not going to get burned and it's going to be great. That's stupid. Drunkenness. People are like, this will be great. I'm going to get drunk and it's going to be a party and things will be wonderful. Do you know what they don't show on beer commercials? People vomiting their guts out over the toilet. People dead because they wrecked their cars on the way home. People who said and did stupid things and ruined their future job opportunities. Drunkenness is tied to stupidity as well. It builds on that in verses 12 and 13. My people consult their wooden idol. Their diviner's wand informs them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. They've played the harlot from their God. They offer sacrifices on the top of the mountains, burn incense on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Worshiping idols at every convenient spot is also a clear characteristic of that same sort of spiral of stupidity of wandering away from God. Here's God. God said, I'm a God worthy of worship, with sober mind, in purity of heart. Idols, on the other hand, say, do what you want, get drunk, do whatever you want with your body, and everything will be fine. They sell a lie that if you believe it, you are an idiot. 
Because what is the end result of idolatry? Death, destruction, chaos, and misery. What is the end result of worshiping God? Though it means that you walk through a path of difficulty, the end result of it is glory and honor and eternal life and blessing in God's presence. God is honest with you. This will be hard, but it is worth it. Satan through idols sells you a lie. Right now you can have all you want and it will be wonderful. And Proverbs basically puts it very poignantly. When your flesh and your body are consumed, when you've lost your reputation, when your money is gone and you are on your deathbed and you look back and you say, why? Then you finally understand. This was a lie. And this was true. And so God is warning the people The immorality and the drunkenness ultimately are characteristics that flow out of the idolatry and the spiritual adultery of having abandoned God. Why does it say, I will not punish your daughters or your brides? Because all the people are caught up in this sort of sin. God's basically saying, should I just punish these people over here? Because the people who are supposed to be doing the leading, they're the ones leading people into the sin. The men go apart with harlots, offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. Collectively, the people without understanding, without knowledge of God, without understanding of the consequences of sin, without awareness of where all this is heading, they are ruined. God continues through the end of the chapter and speaks ironically and sadly of their state. Don't let Judah get involved, verse 15. Stop saying as the Lord lives when you don't know the Lord. The end of verse 15. If you're like a stubborn heifer, is God going to lead you like a flock of sheep to the pasture? Ephraim's joined to idols. Let him be. Let him go his own way. Let him figure it out. They ran out of liquor, so now they're just doing immorality and reveling in their shame, their rulers as the people. The wind carries them away and will reveal their shame because of their sacrifices of idolatry. So we have all these statements in which God has not given up on his people, but he speaks with sort of the same tone that Jesus says when he stands outside Jerusalem and says, I've stretched out my hands all day long to a stubborn and rebellious people, and they keep going their own way. God rightfully expected his people to be righteous. When they went their own way, he brought a case against them, but the outcome of that case is terrifying. He lets them go their own way, experience the consequences of their actions, describes the chaos that they have brought on themselves as the natural consequence of having rejected him. Chapter 5 continues this theme. I think chapter 5 says this, which is very similar to chapter 4, but slightly different emphasis. God abandons those who abandon him so that they might return. So God forgets those who forget him so that they might remember him. God abandons those who abandon him so that they might return. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, God holds the leaders accountable. Hear, priests, listen, house of the king, the judgment applies to you. You've been a snare at Mizpah and a net on Tabor. 
So were mountains that were places where God did mighty acts that became places of pagan worship. Despite their depravity, they have not hidden themselves from God. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. God doesn't just hold the leaders accountable, but also the people as well in verses 3 through 5. God sees their sin. I know Ephraim and Israel has not, is not hidden from me. For Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their sin and their lack of relationship with God creates this seemingly impossible obstacle to returning. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God for a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. The reality is it is possible for us to get in a point where we feel stuck with our sin because we know that the only way to come to God is to give up the sin, but it seems so hard to give up the sin that we just say, I can't go back to God. And we know that the only way to find forgiveness is to have a relationship with God, but we believe the lie that Satan brings to us that all the things you've done, God surely is not going to forgive you. And God's people in this passage are in this sad state where they're so committed to their sin, they're unwilling to give it up and repent. And they're so far from God, relationally speaking, that they just don't want to even turn back to him. Their pride also accuses and trips them up. The pride of Israel, verse 5, testifies against him. Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah has stumbled with them. So that phrase in verse 15 of chapter 4, I think, is speaking ironically. Though Israel goes this way, don't let Judah do it. But the reality is Judah was already doing it too. So what's God's response? He holds the leaders accountable. He holds the people guilty as well. God abandons them for a time. They will go with their flocks and herds, as in, I think, to offer sacrifice, to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. God wants nothing to do with their hypocrisy and false worship, and so they can take herds up to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices all day long, and God says, I'm not going to accept any of it. Their treachery of idolatry brings treachery on them as well. Verse 7 they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. What's the significance of the new moon? People worshipped um, all the hosts of heaven, right? One of these is a moon goddess, right? And he's basically saying, you've worshipped the new moon. The coming of the new moon will be a sign against you of the destruction that I'm bringing upon you for your punishment. So God abandons them for a time. And building on that, God will pour out wrath until they repent. So God abandons those who abandon them by holding them accountable for their guilt, by turning away for a time, and by pouring out wrath until they repent so that they might return. But we don't see that until the very end of verse 15. We see first the idea of God pouring out wrath. Ephraim will be desolated. Blow the horn, sound the alarm. Behind you, Benjamin, they're betrayed. Ephraim will become desolation in the day of rebuke. And this is certain, I declare what is sure. But it's not just Ephraim, but also Judah. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. We say, what's the big deal about moving a boundary? God had apportioned the land, divided it fairly among the tribes. This was your designated plot of land. 
If you're like, I want to take some of my neighbor's property, I'm going to move the fence post over, now this is mine as well. That was an act of treachery and betrayal against your people. And so the fact that the princes of Judah have become like those who do this, he's saying they have betrayed the people through their evil leadership and they are going to face my judgment. We continue in verses 11 and 12. Going their own way leads to destruction from the Lord. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to follow man's command. Here's God's law. Ephraim said, I will do what the word of man says instead. Therefore, verse 12, I am like a moth to Ephraim and rottenness to the house of Judah. Because you are going your own way, I will bring destruction upon you. Seeking help of enemies, not God, would bring them no cure, but only further wrath. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah's wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. So many times when we are walking in sin, we say the solution is to go to someone who's not God. Something that isn't God. There's got to be a secular solution to this problem that I'm having. Not all depression is sin, but depression can be a result of sinful patterns of life. And to the extent that it is, I'm not being responsible and doing my work. I am being lazy, something like that. To the extent that my sinful choices are leading me to feel badly about life, and my solution is, I'm going to go eat a food that I like. I'm going to go take medicine or alcohol or drugs so that I don't have to face the realities of the situation that I've put myself in. That's not going to solve the problem. To the extent that pursuing lust creates problems in a relationship like a marriage, the solution is not get the other person in the marriage to share in the lust. You know, their, their secular counsel would say one person in a marriage is involved in pornography, so let's get the other one to be okay with it, then there won't be a conflict. Does that solve the problem? Absolutely not. Being... Um, Being someone who's angry, uh, you get really frustrated at life, what's secular advice? Go punch a pillow. Don't punch a person, punch a pillow. Does that fix the problem? No, because the root problem is you being frustrated at the unpredictableness or the, the aspects of life that aren't going according to plan and so you want to take it out on something. God says, you don't take it out on something. You turn it over to me and let me take care of it for you. But to the extent that we turn to a secular solution for lust, for anger, for any manner of other things, discouragement, we're not going to find help. We're not going to find true solutions. The reason Israel was in trouble was because they were worshiping the idols of the nations 
And so when we went to the nations who were idolaters for help, they were going right back to the thing that was the cause of the problem, not the solution. And if we are sinning and we say more sin is the answer, clearly that's not going to fix the problem because the difficulty and the frustration and the consequences are flowing out of the sin, so adding more sin to it is just going to lead to more misery. And that was the lesson that the Israelites and the people of Judah were stubbornly refusing to hear. God even says, I'm not going to let this be the solution. Verse 14, I will be like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. I will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place. God abandons those who abandon him. Why? Last phrase of verse 15. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, in their affliction they will earnestly seek me. The only solution to bring God near and find healing from the consequences of our sin is to confess our guilt and seek God wholeheartedly. And that's often the last thing we want to do when we're trapped in sin. When we feel like there's no hope, when we feel like, how could God possibly want to take me back? But it's absolutely the only thing that we can do. What do we see from this passage by way of application for us today? God demands righteousness of every man, woman, and child. That's very clear from the Old and New Testament. Love me with all of who you are. Love your neighbors yourself. Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Romans makes it clear all of us fall short, and in our falling short and going our own way, we spiral into further stupidity and the downward path of depravity in our pursuit of idols. Romans 1 lays this out very clearly. You reject God, you start worshiping sticks and bugs. You reject purity, you start pursuing immorality to the point that you are doing things with animals and things that are unnatural and all sorts of perversity. You turn away from love of neighbor as yourself and you get to the point of people committing things like being serial murderers and cannibals and monsters in the way that they behave toward each other. Sin is a downward spiral of depravity and increasing stupidity and increasing slavery and increasing devastation. For the Israelites, God called them to repentance by turning back to him and following his law. For the priests and kings to lead the people back to God. For us, God calls us to repentance by looking and seeing what Jesus has done. I was a sinner, wicked, desperate, lost, enslaved. Jesus died to pay the penalty in my place. That's the only thing I can turn to. I can't be good enough. I can't undo one bit of the bad that I have done. There's one of the Marvel movies. One of the characters said, I want to wipe out the red in my ledger. That's the secular hope of salvation. If I do enough good, maybe it won't matter that I killed somebody. Maybe it, matter, it won't matter that I stole from somebody. Maybe it won't matter that I cheated on somebody. If I do enough good, I'll be fine. God says you can never do enough good. But Jesus did all the good that you'll ever need in your place. We have to realize nothing we can do to earn God's favor and trust Jesus in our place to turn aside God's wrath. 
Only when we turn to God through Jesus and keep turning to God through Jesus will God draw near to us. Loving the world makes us God's enemies. First John makes that clear. The love of the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the foolish pride of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away and the lusts of it. Pride and selfish pursuit of sin bring God's judgment. What does James say? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves and God will forgive you and restore you and exalt you. But only when you draw near to him. Loving God alone and humbling ourselves to come before him brings God near and we find his forgiveness. You and I can't trick God. He knows our hearts. Sometimes what we do with other people is we're like, I've been doing something that you don't like, so I'm going to stop doing the thing that you don't like, and then you'll get off my back about it. God doesn't fall for those sorts of tricks. God knows that if I lie to him, that I'm lying to him. God knows that if I'm not wholeheartedly seeking after him, I'm not wholeheartedly seeking after him. We get to Jonah in Sunday school next week. But there's other people who've tried to run away from God, and we've often behaved in ways like that when we've said, I can hide my sin because I'm successful at hiding it from this person. I can hide it from God. Not how it works. God knows everything, sees everything, is everywhere. You cannot hide from God. Maybe he won't notice if I do this. He sees it. Maybe he won't notice if I think this. He knows your thoughts before you have them. Maybe he won't notice if I do this thing over here. He's everywhere. Of course he knows. We can't trick God. He knows your heart. He doesn't want a sham of getting out of trouble. This is what the people of Israelites did over and over again in the book of Judges. They said, we're in trouble because we worshipped idols and we turned away from God. We don't like being beat on by the Midianites or whatever. Let's turn back to God. 20 years later, they were back to the same sort of sinful behavior. Back to worshiping idols. Back to going their own way. We should learn from their example and realize God doesn't want us to just follow him for 20 minutes or 15 years or whatever and then go our own way for a long stretch and then he'll take us back and then we'll go our own way and then he'll take us back. God wants us to follow after him with our whole heart and our whole lives. Israel stood accused. And apart from God's forgiveness and grace, so do you and I. But here's the hope. In Jesus, our accusations can be silenced as he pleads his work in our place. I looked for a knowledge of God and kindness and faithfulness, and I found all of these sins. You know what Satan does? Satan says, hey, you're a sinner. And Jesus says, yes, but I've forgiven them. But we only have that if we have a relationship with God. In Jesus, our sins can be washed away. In Jesus, we can attain to the righteousness of God, not by works of the law, but by God's mercy and grace in our lives. Rising to be and do what God created us to do, to walk in good works and to be a holy people devoted to him. So to the extent that you and I reflect on our lives and feel guilt for our sin, turn to Jesus. To the extent that you feel yourself trapped in some way in the downward spiral of sin, 
turn to Jesus? Do you feel that God is far away as he was toward the people of Israel, forgetting them so they would remember him, abandoning them for a time so they would come back to him? If that is the experience that you feel is going on in your life, turn back to Jesus. If God seems near and you are faithfully serving him, heed the warning of Israel. They had the law, the testimonies, the promises, and they repeatedly and over and over again quickly turned aside. You and I have to watch out for pride, for the constant pull to go our own way. We need to always be focused on knowing God, not facts about God, not God over there, not I can answer the questions in trivia or in a sermon discussion time or say things that sound spiritual in a conversation with other people from church, but do you know God as your God like you know people and your family as part of your family? Do you, are you growing in your relationship with God? Not, hey, God, give me stuff. Okay, great. Hey, God, give me stuff. Okay, great. But like actually wanting to know what God is like so that you can be what God is like so that you can draw closer to him. The alternative for knowing God and growing in a relationship with him that is made very clear in Hosea 4 and 5 is destruction and sorrow and misery and chaos. You and I need to keep striving after knowing God as our God, us as his people, because that way lies eternal life and blessing and rejoicing in his presence. And the alternative is destruction and sorrow and misery. We want to make it out like there's some sort of halfway point. I can follow God or I can sin, or I can sort of vacillate back and forth. What did James say about that? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Don't expect that God's going to bless you if that's your attitude. There's a sense in which the Bible says, be wholeheartedly committed to sin or be wholeheartedly committed to God. Obviously, this is the right response, but you can't sit in the middle. So which way are you going to go? Knowing God is essential because refusing to know God destroys you. Knowing God and having a relationship with him brings blessing in life and peace. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy truths in this passage because we don't like to acknowledge sin is as bad as it is. We like to make excuses for sin. We like to notice it in other people's lives and not in our own hearts. There are many obstacles to being brutally honest about the horrible consequences of sin and the extent to which we may love it from day to day and the reality to which if we are loving sin, we are not loving you. Obviously, there is a process of growth in turning from sin and becoming more like you. It's not as though it happens all in a moment. There are some sins that it seems like we may struggle with our entire lives. There are some that it seems you deliver us from in a moment. And what those are seems to depend on the person and the situation and so many different things. And yet, just because dealing with sin is a process 
I pray that you would help us not to be weary in that process and act like it's not an urgent and a necessary thing to put sin to death and to pursue you wholeheartedly. It is so easy to want to tone down the consequences of sin because then we feel like we can do it and it will not be that bad. But Hosea points out that sin destroys us. So help us to look within our own hearts before we accuse those around us. Help us to see the frightful consequences of sin and not to tolerate it as though it's a cute little thing that isn't all that bad. Help us to see the hope of the gospel that says this is really not something you do on your own. It is something that is empowered by the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God the Father on the basis of the forgiveness found in Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to cling to those promises and those truths as the basis for having victory over sin. But help us to fight it. Help us to cling to you. Help us to give up whatever we need to give up for the sake of holiness and being a people called out to be yours. Because it won't matter what money we have, what accomplishments we have in our career, what handful of people think well of us during our life on earth. None of those things will matter when we stand before you. What will matter is do we have a relationship with you Do we have a strong relationship with you that has been forged by years of turning to you and away from sin? Though it is hard, though it is a battle, though at times it seems impossible, though it may cost us everything that we have held dear in our life apart from you. It is worth it and it is necessary And to not forsake our sin, to go our own way, is to walk the path to hell and destruction. Help us to see the soberness of that reality, Lord, day by day. Amen.